Well, welcome to Cornerstone. Uh, if, you're, uh, if it's your first time here, good to have you. Uh, if it's your second time here, good to have you. If it's your hundredth time here, good to have you. Glad to have you all here. Um, for those of you that are new, just so you know, we are passionate about teaching the Bible. We believe it's God's truth. It was, it was written to us as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to tell us the truth about who God is. And so if you don't have a Bible today, you need a Bible. And so if you need a Bible, we've got them for you. They look kind of like this. I'm going to be preaching with it. You can just grab one of these. So raise your hand, and one of these good-looking men right here will uh, be happy to, uh, to get you one. But if you've got your Bibles, um, open them up to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, we're going to be uh, back in the book of 1 Corinthians. But we're, if you remember right, we're talking about manhood and womanhood. What is biblical masculinity and biblical femininity? Now... Let me caveat this like I did last time. I've spoke now on sex several times in, in this service, in this uh, gathering. I've spoke on drinking. I've spoke on all kinds of things, and nothing scares me more than to talk about manhood and womanhood. Womanhood, because I know some of you women out there are going to be looking at me like, who are you? That's why I'll be inviting my wife up and a few other women to talk. So hopefully then I, I'll, I'll have some uh, uh, knowledge of what I'm saying. But to the men, let me just say this to you. We're going to be talking about biblical manhood today. And gosh, I pray I come across as I know what I'm talking about in regards to God's word. But I pray I don't come across as arrogant. Because I feel like so often men will get up and they'll start talking about biblical manhood and they'll come up here like they've got the chops and they're all that and they've arrived. I don't feel like I've, I've arrived and God gave me kids to help me arrive. But, um, but I do believe the church is desperate right now for men to be men and for women to be women. God designed us that way, formed us that way. He he. He tells us what it means, so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking about what does the Bible tell us about what's manhood and what's womanhood. But let me start this way. So I'm going to throw something on the screen, and we'll, we'll pop it up there. I'm going to, I told you I'd always start as, uh, at least a little bit humorous. But a couple went in to get help with their marriage. And after about 20 minutes, they're sitting there arguing back and forth about, here's my wife and here's my husband. He, he first looked at the woman, and he, he said, listen, Using emojis on your phone, I'd like you to describe your husband today. So she typed, and this is what she came up with. All right? So that's her husband's day. It takes a little while to sink in. Just let it settle. Let it settle. I don't think much has to be said, but we get the point. Then looked at the man and said, now using emojis, I'd like you to describe your wife's life. So this is what he came up with. <laughs> there you go. I also found this this week. A little thing that a woman wrote on men are like. All right, so buckle in. Men are like blenders. You need one, but you're not quite sure why. Thank you. I'll be in Moore Park next week. Men are like commercials. You aren't quite sure what to believe, and you're sure that at the end of it, there's a catch. 
Men are like computers, hard to figure out and never have enough memory. (laughs) Men are like government bonds. They take way too long to mature, and at the end, you're not even sure what you got. (laughs) Men are like horoscopes. They always tell you what to do and how to think, and you find out usually they're wrong. Men are like lava lamps. They're fun to look at, but they're not all that bright. Men are like mascara. They usually run at the first sign of emotion. (laughs) Men are like weather. Nothing can be done to change either one of them, so just deal with it. So, (laughs) you didn't like that one? I like that one. (laughs) My wife didn't like it either. Now, what we do sometimes with that, there's kind of caricatures, right, about men. And and in fact, several TV shows play off of these caricatures. Um, It used to be, if you remember right back in the 50s, It was always like father knows best, right? And Ward Cleaver would come in. It was like, oh, father. My generation was the Simpsons. My generation was uh, Al Al Bundy. Married with children, right? Love and marriage. Characters of men. Now, in some ways, us men kind of deserve it. Let's be honest, don't we? But on another level, what's really sad about that and what we've been trying to talk about is that's not what God intended. When God created humanity, he had something incredible for him. And the way we tried to talk through this last week was to put it into this idea of the dance. Remember, we we talked about that I have authority to speak on this idea of dancing because I won a dance competition. So for those of you who weren't here last week, you'll have to listen to last week and learn about how I'm a champion dancer. Now with it, though, one of the things that we talked about was the way God created everything, right? The way that Genesis 1-2 are laid out is this way in which our, our Father in heaven created this dance floor with which humanity to dance. He said, let there be light, and there was light. It said into it, when it came in, he separated the light from the darkness. In other words, he created the lighting for the dance, After he created the lighting, it said he he separated the expanse. He took water from below. He created an atmosphere whereby which now all of a sudden humanity would be able to exist in and and operate together. He took the the water that was on the land or on 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 the surface and he separated it out and he created land. After the land, it says what sprung into that was vegetation of all kinds. And what I talked about last week, can you imagine walking on that planet at that time? Just, says after he'd done that, then into the waters came sea life of all imaginable sizes and shapes. For the first time ever through the oceans came a whale song, and it echoed throughout all of that. Also birds, right? Not only the caw, caw, kind of crow, nasty sound, but what also came into that were songbirds and nightingales that began to sing all over. In other words, not only did he create the dance floor, but the music of which it operated was now being laid out. He then put all kinds of land mammals out there. He put mammals and reptiles. He put everything you can imagine to start this dance off. And then into the middle of all of it, when everything was said and done, it says, he looked at, at who he was in his triunity and he said, let us make God, in, or let us make man in our image. And it says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then he looked at them and he said to them, I want you to rule over, subdue this earth, and I want you to enjoy it. 
I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill all of it. I want you, and the idea was, I want you to dance. Now, we know the way the dance happened is they brought Adam in first, and God brought all the animals in front of him, if you remember right, and he looked at the, at the elephant. He said, we're not going to dance too well together. The lion, he said, no, thank you. But then all of a sudden, God inserted into that moment, woman. And we know from that moment that when she came in front of him, he said, whoa, ho, ho, man. Hello, nice to meet you. Shall we dance? Now in 1 Corinthians 11, when we get to verse 10, it's going to talk about angels. We know that somewhere in there, angels were created. In fact, they watched the whole thing. They watched as God created. They heard the stars begin to sing. They were part of this creative process in which in God's superintending of things, they saw how man and woman operated so perfectly, but they also saw how he fell. And in 1 Peter 1.12, it says that the angels have been longing, looking into this plan of God, whereby which even though man fell apart, he allowed Satan to step in and dance with his wife, is that God's been on this incredible redemption plan of rescuing humanity from all that took place. And the angels, it says in 1 Peter 1, are looking in, longing to see what's going on. There was this promise that there was going to come a group of people that would know Jesus Christ, that would live differently, walk differently, act differently. And then we land in Corinth. And imagine this, we have men-women problems. I mean, not us, them. We would never have that. And the angels are looking at it, it says, and they're seeing what God intended way back when and the breaking of the heart, realizing what it was intended to be and what it's become. Now, the main issue that we're going to try to talk about inside of this discussion is what is manhood. Now, our world tries to tell us a lot of things. The world tells you, in fact, if you look back through, whether it's the Victorian era, whether you're talking about the 1900s, whether you're talking about even into our time, culture has always been telling us what is a man. Now, for the longest time, it's kind of become androgynous, especially in the 60s, when, we, when all of a sudden, in 1968, we were going to burn the bras, and everything was going to become this wonderful androgynous society. And then people along my generation said, yeah, I don't think we want to burn our bras anymore. We actually want to be dads and moms, and, and we want to actually learn what does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a woman. But it's hard, because you've grown up in this world that it, it, these lines are blurred. And in the middle of all of it, Paul writes to this church and says, men, be man. It's good. Be a man. Be who God designed you to be. Women, be women. Be who God has designed you to be. In fact, you're going to be that for eternity. We're not going to be androgynous people one day. Men who are men today are going to be men in the future. Women who are women today are going to be women in the future. And the idea was, I created you just like that for a purpose. Now just be you. Just be you. Now what he's talking about with this in verse 7, if you look down in your Bibles, on one end he's going to tell us something significant about men. And we'll look, kind of learn this the next couple weeks in regards to women. What does it mean that a woman was, was uniquely made for man in this way? But then he's going to talk about this idea that, that men are the glory of God. Now those of you that are in here that men don't get too high and mighty. I'm going to clarify this next week on what this means. But this week I really want to talk about what does it mean to be head? 
In verse 3, you'll see that. It says, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, last week we talked about that's not talking about source like the head of the rivers. He's talking about authority. He's talking about authorization. He's talking about order and worship. That in some way, God has delegated authority to men inside a certain context, and he expects them to grab it. Now, with this, though, let me be very clear so that we understand what it means to have authority. It's not yours. It's been given to you. If you're a man in this room in regards to your marriage, you have been given authority, not because you're smarter, not because you're, you're, you're wiser, not because somehow you can do things better, not just because even you're, you're stronger or faster. You've been given it because you are the man and God has orchestrated in such a way that you will be the head of your wife. You'll see that like in, first, uh, or in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, that there's this idea in which you're to play a role in which you are to lead inside of your marriage, inside of your home. God gave it to you. But here's the key. The reality of being handed authority or a leadership of that kind is there is responsibility. And the biggest problem in our culture with young men growing up is because their fathers did not teach them responsibility. We don't are responsible for our children so many so that we even we have a law inside of our, people always ask me, do you like this health care law? You know the part I don't like about it? You stay on your parents' health insurance until you're 26. When are you going to grow up? That's what I don't like about it. We're allowed to stay in our parents' basement and play Halo 1, 2, 3, Master, I don't know, man, I mean I have four now for all I know. I know, I just pretend like I don't. We tell them, don't get married. Why? Don't grow up. Just don't grow up. What we need to start telling our young men and our men is it's time to grow up. Now, oftentimes, they never laughed. <laughs> it's time, though, isn't it? But in order for our young men to grow up, our older men have to grow up. Now into that, what we have is, is that toys just change from the time you're 5 to you're 55, don't they? Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't play, but Paul is calling into this group of people and he's saying to the guys, guys, it is time to become men. And that's not a bad thing. Now, the first thing we think about with men, though, is if I'm going to really be a man, I'm going to kill things, and I'm going to fix cars, and I'm going to play sports. Jesus Christ never once killed an elk. He never had a car, and I don't know what my third one was, but he didn't do that either. <laughs> and he was fully a man. God does not look on the outside when he cares about what a man is. He looks on the inside. That's where manhood begins. Now when we talked about this frame last week, that's what we meant is we have got to learn how this dance operates because when we go to the book of Genesis, what we learn, you can open up your Bibles to that in chapter 3, we learn that inside of this story in Genesis 3, that ultimately who was held accountable for the fall was not the woman, but who? Man. 
We find that out in Genesis 3. God comes in the midst of the garden. (coughs) Excuse me. And it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to who? The man. And he said to him, Adam, where are you? This is what I mean by when we talk about headship, responsibility. Now, we might like to say in our culture, you know, everything's just, it's great. We're going to share everything. But ultimately, with those of us that are men, that are married, or those of us in this church that are elders, one day, regardless of what happens, God is going to look at us, and we are going to be held accountable and responsible for what happened inside of our families and what happened inside of our churches. Now, the problem you're seeing in this is this the first flaw that's found inside of masculinity. And listen to me closely, and if you're taking notes, write this down for those of you who are men. The first flaw was that Adam checked out, and when he failed, he did what? He hid. Now, my kids do this great. When they find out daddy's coming home, they have a phenomenal capacity to hide. Now, with that, it's just ingrained within us, inside of our sinful nature, but it's a part of who we are as men that we have to be aware of is we have a tendency to check out. Let me give you an illustration just so you understand that I am not perfect, which if my wife were here, she'd be like, see, the other night, I come home, and I'm like, I'm going to serve my wife. I was so excited to serve my wife and my family. I came in. We'd finished eating. And I did, man. I felt like Father knows best at the table, and we're just talking. And I'm like, dang, Todd, you're doing a great job as a father and a husband. (laughs) Can't wait till they sing songs about you tonight. (laughs) And then it came time to getting them to bed. Scary. It's the one place where I feel like my children suddenly get in charge. And I'm thinking to myself, do I want to put the kids to bed or do I suddenly want an appetite to do the dishes? I looked at my wife and I said, babe, why don't I do the dishes? (laughs) Baby, I'll just do the dishes and you can go. And what was I doing? I was hiding. Now listen to me. The fallout of checking out and the fallout of hiding when regards to a headship that we're supposed to fulfill has lasting and massive consequences. Now we might say, oh, that's so cute you did the dishes. I don't like the dishes. I just like to do that more than put my children to bed. There's this way in which inside of masculinity is that on one end we're to be responsible and then we neglect our responsibility. Inside of the home and inside of the church, God has called men not to neglect that. We're to be in it, engaged in it, walking in it, knowing what's going on. So when it comes to elders, when it comes to fathers, when it comes to husbands, we can mince this and move this all we want, but ultimately what it comes back to is that we will be held accountable for the responsibility that we have inside of those two realms. That's why God came to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Now, here's the first question I have for the men of our church. 
If God walked into your life, would he be asking, where are you? Think about it for a second. Would he be asking the question, where are you? Have you checked out? Have you hidden because of sin in your life? You're off kind of drifting off into mediocrity. That would be the first thing that when Paul talks about headship in 1 Corinthians 11 and beckoning us back to the garden, this is the first thing we have to understand is the fatal flaw of masculinity is our tendency to check out and our tendency then on top of that then to hide. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, and it happens in chapter 3, verse 16, and we talked about this last week. Here's the other fatal flaw. It talks about with the woman, she's going to have a tendency to want to control, but then afterwards he says, you will want to dominate her. That's the second thing that men have. And just think through the history of mankind. When we talk about masculinity all throughout it, from the moment that man started, we have Cain, and the moment that he didn't get what he wanted, he dominated. He wanted to control the Bible is full of rape, the Bi- of stories of rape. The Bible is full of stories of, of concubines, of polygamy, of all these different things. Because from the moment that mankind fell, is that man either runs from the situation on one end, he neglects his responsibility, or on the other end, he has this other tendency, number two, to abuse his responsibility. I saw this during the Promise Keepers movement. A lot of great things happened, but guys came back from Promise Keepers, man, and they were fired up. Come back in, we're going to be men. They would have chili cook-offs, and you know, they would do all these different things, but when they came into their home, these women that had been neglected for years, and they, I think, well-meaningly came in to be engaged and to lead their family only to do the opposite in which they damaged their wives. We control through sometimes our size. We control through different kinds of ways. And the idea is, is the second fatal flaw of that is, is we've got to understand us as men. If we're ever going to be the men wants us, that God wants us to be, I have to deal with this innate reality of my tendency to check out. And I have to deal with the second thing is when things don't go my way, I will seek to dominate this situation. Daddy's going to make it happen. And we do it in all kinds of different ways. When Paul talks about this idea of a head, he has the opposite in mind in regards to that. When he talks about what it means for men to be men, it means they're not checked out. It means they're not guys that are hiding. Now what's scary about that is that, do you understand that probably in most churches, and ours the same, 60% or so of those that attend a church are who? Women. Probably 80% of what gets done in a church is women. Inside of the home, inside of all kinds of different things. And Paul is saying, that's not my headship. When he talks about this idea of authority, it's bringing everything to bear in such a way that we come alongside of the women that we're engaged with, whether it's women in our workplace or women at the home or women inside the church, whatever it is, and we're providing a structure that says, I'm going to put you on display so that you look beautiful. It's providing that. Now, I learned one time what not to do dancing with my wife. 
The first time I danced with my wife, I was kind of absent. She wanted me to dance, and I kept saying, no, baby, I don't want to dance. I don't want to dance. I don't want to dance. So finally, she let me dance. Now, I grew up swing dancing. I don't know if you know what that is. That's what I grew up doing. I'm a country boy. That's where I come from. I tell you what. So <laughs> I take my wife out dancing, and we were at a wedding. She has on this beautiful dress. I've got on my coat and my tie. So I take off my coat, loosen my tie, and I go, baby, we're going to dance. I'm throwing her around the floor, you know, and just. Right? <laughs> Leading wrongly. And then I looked at her and I said, I said now run and jump at me. So she comes and. <laughs> no, it's, it was good up to this point. She runs and I, I put her down on this knee and swing her and I put her down on this knee. So she came down between and I go to lift her up and her dress came straight down. They saw my wife's glory. This is what I mean by when we say we abuse our authority, we sometimes forget in the dance we've got to think through a lot more than just dancing. Paul wants them to get that. So the question we have to ask in ourselves, if that's our predisposition, okay, let's get that in our heads, is that number one, we have a tendency to hide, we have a tendency to, to check out, and then secondly, we have a tendency, then he says, we'll want to dominate, we'll want to come back in and, and sometimes lead the dance incorrectly, throwing our wives around then the question we have to ask ourselves then is where did Adam fail? Because in order to understand what I'm supposed to do, I've got to understand what it means as a man that he failed. Now here's the first thing that he failed at. He failed most grievously in that he forgot his main job in life is to walk with God. Before we talk about anything else and what it means to be a man, at the core of what it is, it is that God created us to have a relationship. If you're somebody in here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, one of the biggest things you're going to have to understand is you will never be a man unless you have a relationship with God. Real men know God. That's a bumper sticker for you, I tell you what. No, but it's true. Real men walk with God. They have an intimate relationship with God. See, out of it, Adam made two fatal mistakes also, is that number one, he thought he didn't need God. Guys, apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing. We live our lives in such a way that we can create it in which we are not intimately knowing the God of the universe. He created us in this, in this context to be dependent upon Him. We need Him every single day of our lives. The greatest thing I can do inside of my family, the greatest thing I can do inside of this church is to teach what it means. We are desperate for God. We just don't know it. What we need is a thirst and a hunger within this room, men, that understand, and we'll get to women, because I believe women, it's the same way, is that we have men that understand that we are desperate every single day for God. We need Him incredibly. That's what Adam forgot in all this. When the serpent was lying to Eve, and he said, you can be like God, somewhere in there, the pride of Adam, he said, yeah, you know what? I don't think I need God a whole lot either think we're good. And the second thing that happens 
is they forgot to know and understand and love the Word of God. He played with the Scripture. A real man walks with God and is dependent upon a God, and a real man knows the Word of God. The guy that I think about whenever it comes to my mind is David. Isn't it a man after God's own heart? One of the key characteristics of David, you'll see this like in 2 Samuel 7, is that he comes to God, and one of the key issues in which I will know whether or not I am walking with God is my prayer life. David talked about talking to God all the time. In it, he would look at him and say, God, who am I? Who am I? Do you care about me? Do you care about my children to come? He talked with him about everything, anything that you can imagine. Even I can imagine the, the times in prayer when he said, God, my enemy, would you just slay him? I haven't had that prayer yet in my walk, but I will maybe one day. But the key aspect was he just he needed a guy named Robert McShane that lived a, a few hundred years ago, or a couple hundred years ago. He wrote this statement. He said, who a man is when he's alone on his knees with God, that he is and no more. Let me say it again. Who a man is when he's alone on his knees with God, that is who he is and no more. See, what should happen inside of masculinity when we understand this, and especially this idea of what does it mean to have headship, is that before I can learn headship, I've got to learn headship over my life on my knees. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, before Paul ever talks to women, he says, I want men to look heavy, heavy. So here's the question I have for the guys in this room. How is your prayer life? If I were to look at your prayer life, more importantly, if God were to look at your prayer life, would it reflect what it means that one day you will be held responsible for what it means to lead in your home and the roles that you might play inside of maybe a church or something else? Do you believe that apart from him you can do nothing? And the only way I know that is how I pray. That's the first thing. The second thing when it talks about a man after God's own heart is with David is the Bible. Man, in, first, in 2 Timothy 4, he says this about it. He says that, that God's word, is, it's God-breathed. It's proper for teaching, for reproof, for training in Christ, uh, righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. David claimed all throughout it, God, I am desperate for your word. I need to know your statutes. I need to understand your law. I've meditated on it day and night. The problem with most of us men is we spend most of our time meditating on Sports Center. Da-da-da, da-da-da. Amount of men that meditate on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC. The amount of men that meditate on talk radio. We will never be men that God designed us to be until we're men of the book. We should know the book, love the book, walk in the book, understand the book. That in order for me to have a walk with God, the way he's designed it is for me to talk to him and for him to talk to me. 
But not only that, but David talked about this idea of worship, to ascribe to God who he was. The other thing that we need to be, if we're ever going to be these men after God's own heart, if we're ever going to be able to fulfill this role, this responsibility that God's given us to be head, is we have to worship in our own private life. We should have time in which we just put ourselves in front of God, declaring to him how amazing he is. But not only that, but fellas, we have got to be in corporate worship. And I hear so often, it's not men who come to church. In fact, do you know the least populated day of, or Sunday of the year? Do you know what it is? Father's Day and Super Bowl. You know what the most populated day of church is? Mother's Day. Holy cow. That's great leadership. David proclaimed over and over again this idea that he longed to be in the fellowship with all the people worshiping God. Why? Because we need each other. And we're desperate for each other. I need men in my life. Why? Because I have an eight and a seven and a three-year-old. I don't know how those little things work. I need other men to look at me and go, yeah. Let me give you a hug, but don't tell anybody I did it. You know, it's just that thing in which we need one another. We need one another in our work lives. We need one another in, in helping us sort through life of how to spend our money, how to do different things. It's not just that we show up and sing a few songs and hear a sermon. We are desperate for one another. And then the final thing is this, is that we have, number one, a man of prayer. We have, number two, a man that's in the Word. Number three, a man that worships. But can I just, this is the last one that's key. We need broken men. Gosh. You know those weeks you're about to speak on something and you feel the least qualified to come tell people about it? Still this week, God has been great. I prayed at the beginning of the year, God, just break me, make me the man of God you want me to be. And then God goes, okay, that's what you want. I'll give it to you. We need men that are repentant, that understand that it's not if we fail, it's when we fail, and then how we fail. We need men that are honest about failure, that come to God on a regular basis. Why? Because we have an advocate in the Son, Jesus Christ, who has forgiven us of all of our sins, not just part of our sins. We need men that aren't afraid to admit to their wives, to their kids, to the people around them. If you're single, the people that are around you. It's just this idea we need men to be able to come in and proclaim to people, I blew it. Why? Because the first step in becoming a man is not how you, or it's not when, it's not if you fail, it's how you fail. And way too many men are hiding from their sin, the very problem that, 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 that we were talking about way back in the garden. And we need men to fail into maturity. We are going to fail. Part of brokenness is the acknowledgement that we fail. And that's why I want to finish this way this morning. And the women can listen in, but let me just talk to the men. Are you checked out? Are you hiding? I know in a room this size, there are probably men that are abusing potentially their wife and their kids, whether verbally, physically. 
There's men in here throwing around their weight. Some of you have more than others. They're doing these different things. But at the core of it, do you understand? You don't have to find manhood. You have to find God. And when you find God, manhood finds you. Are you a man in this room? We talk about being a man, and we think somehow that manhood is everything our world tells us. But at the core of who you are, are you a man that pursues God? Does your wife see it? Does your children see it? Do the people around you see it? Do you understand that you are desperate for that relationship? It's what God's designed you to do and to be is to know Him. That's the key mark of manhood. See, before I talk about the things I talk about next week, like protection and provision and all these other things, fellas, are you a man that knows God? Are you teaching your sons, if you have sons, how to know God? Are you teaching the men around you what it means to know God and walk God with God and love God? See, so often within it, we teach our sons how to do great things, how to play basketball, how to play football, how to do all kinds of different things. And when they stand in front of God one day, it won't matter because what matters, according to Matthew 7, is not all the things that we did. It is whether or not I know God. I think there are several young men growing up inside of our churches that said a prayer when they're seven, but they don't know God. And in some ways, men, we're responsible for that. We have a role to play inside of the lives of our young men. And so with that, fellas, would God be saying to you, where are you? Are you absent? dominating? Or are you learning to know God so that you become this man? And let me tell you something. The beauty of what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, we can do this because greater is he who's in us than he is in the world. We can learn to dance, and I don't, a lot of you don't like that. It's like, why couldn't he talk about football? Because the Steelers aren't playing anymore. Football's over. But it's time to learn to dance, fellas. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you'd like to know Jesus Christ, if you're a man in this room or a woman, we would love to tell you what it means and what it means to walk with him. But this week, guys, could you do me a favor? Don't try all the things that sometimes books tell you to do to be a man. Just this week, walk with God. Spend time in the Word. Get on your knees and talk to God. Learn what it means to talk to God. Have fellowship with your family. Lead them in worship. And you're like, I don't have a guitar. You don't need a guitar. Get around other men. But also, could you do this one last thing for me? Freak your wife, your kids, your friends out and actually walk up to them and say, would you please forgive me? Here's where I've gone wrong. Spend time evaluating your life and asking yourself that question. 
If you're a man in here and you like prayer because you know maybe one of these areas you're just, you're weak on. And by the way, that's all of us. And you want prayer today, we'd love to pray for you. Don't leave today without getting prayer. If you're somebody in here that's never been baptized, if you're a man and a woman, today's the day to be obedient. Trust God. Get baptized. Now to the women in this room, let me just say on, all the behalf, on behalf of all the men, we're sorry at times we haven't done our job. At times we've failed. But as one of the pastors and elders here, and I can promise you the rest of them, our heart is that we as men become great dance partners to you and that we come alongside of you so that you flourish in what God's called you to do. You're not a little wilted rose that somehow we need to help you out with. But it just means we're sorry for not doing our job. And as your pastor, all of you women in here, I love you. I really do care about you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for today. God, I believe you've designed the men in this room to do the amazing. Father, I believe deep within them, you've created them in different ways. If they're single, you've created them to learn what it means to lead. If they're married, you know what it is. If they're, they're young and they've never been married before, Father, I believe that you've created men in this room to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you could ask or imagine. Father, I believe the men in this room, you sent your son to die for them. You gave us your Holy Spirit so that we might pull this off. You've designed us to, to know what it means to be heads, not as people that lord it over, but fathers, people from their knees learn to wash feet. And so would you begin to do this supernaturally inside of our men? God, will we not become men that check out? Will we not be the men that, that somehow think that we're going to dominate over a situation? Father, instead, would you just teach us first what it means to walk with you. God, will we learn what it means just to be a man of God? God, would you take all the pressure off us, all the things that we think we need to do and be, and just fill us this week with an understanding that we're desperate for you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.